0: Coming at you from the We Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas, you're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Staten, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed.
1: Welcome to episode seventy-seven of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Stat, and I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton. We've got a fun show on deck uh, for you today. We've got two great guests joining us. We've got Todd Callis, who is the new play-by-play voice for the Houston Astros. Uh, you can find him on Root Sports. Starting with spring training, they're going to have ten games. Uh, he was he was such a pleasure to talk to. you. Also, we've got uh, Shayhan Jayuraja, who writes for SEC Country and provides a great recap of uh, this past week's college football playoff and uh, Clemson surprising win over Alabama and kind of what we can look forward to as the 2017 season approaches but uh, guys it, it's been a you know a crazy week uh, Texans obviously falling to the Patriots uh, Saturday evening in Foxborough final score 34 to 16 uh, we didn't think that the Texans had any shot in winning this game. And I think the formula that we outlined was that the Texans needed to create turnovers to have a shot to win. And they did create turnovers in the first half of the game and they you know, were competitive going into halftime and then Brock Osweiler took over in the second half.
0: Sure. And creating turnovers is only as valuable as your ability to limit turnovers of your own. So obviously that was an issue as well. But yeah, it went exactly like we thought it would. I would say looking back, um, you have to consider the season a success given what they were working with. But there's probably a pause hanging over every Texans fan and I imagine if they're honest the organization as well because Brock Osweiler is still going to be here
1: yeah he's under contract for 17 million dollars next year you can't cut him so I think that's the biggest question mark for the Texans going into the offseason, because you can't bring in another quarterback. I mean, Tony Romo is a guy, uh, you know, playing for the Cowboys right now, who I think he's being paid 13, 14 million dollars next season. You can't afford to bring him in at quarterback. So that that means that Osweiler either needs to step up his game. Tom Savage has to emerge as the quarterback, but you're also going to have to give him a contract extension or you get lucky and find a guy like Russell Wilson or Dak Prescott in the draft. I mean, does is that is that possible? I mean, is Houston just stuck in this mediocre space because of Brock Osweiler?
2: That's a good question. I think uh, we have two talent two, two talented quarterbacks in Brandon Whedon and Tom Savage. And I gotta have to. Do have to you get, think that? Well, uh, I well I'd say they I'd like to see what they could have done last night compared to Osweiler. okay think saying you?
0: you'd like to see what they could do last night compared to Osweiler is, is drastically different than calling them talented quarterbacks. I, okay. I kind of tend to agree with you on the second. I would not say that they are talented quarterbacks at least not based on what I've seen so far.
2: This is all relative, right? I mean, relative to Osweiler, I'm going to have to call them talented quarterbacks. <laughs> that being said, <laughs> that's, a, let's fair let's, let's, that's or, a fair point. <laughs> let's, let, let's actually get, I want to give Osweiler a little bit of credit last night. The receivers did drop a couple of passes they absolutely should have made. Um, and, you know, it didn't, paying out for the Texans as badly as I thought it would. I thought we would be looking at another twenty-one to zero score going into halftime or something you know, atrocious like that. But it wasn't. I mean, they put up a fight. It's hard to win in Foxborough. The Patriots are the best team in. in pro football right now without a doubt and i think the only team that can rival them in the super bowl is a team you know like the like a green bay or the cow yeah exactly yeah. right
1: I, I think that's a fair point and I, I, you know jeremy and i we watched the game on saturday night together at kirby ice house here in houston and there was a lot of excitement in that first half i mean just you know creating the turnovers i don't know that people felt that the texans were going to win but they were just glad that the texans were in the game and of course this is one of the biggest point spreads uh, for an nfl playoff game in, in league history uh, patriots were favored by 16 and a half and they actually did cover the spread which is a little bit of Remarkable, yes, but one of the notes that I wanted to bring up from the game is Osweiler and his downfield passing. Just how poorly it was. Of course, he had three interceptions uh, in the game, and mostly in the second half. But he was one of eight with three interceptions on passes at least fifteen yards downfield on Saturday. And uh, you know he's he actually has the third lowest completion percentage of such passes since two thousand nine. He's completing just like twenty eight percent of his passes. Who so. did it? No nine. Pardon? Who did it? No nine. In 09, do you do you want to take? Do you guys want to take a guess on the other two quarterbacks? Mm-mm. No, too scared. <laughs> I don't have a clue. Yeah,
0: Brady Quinn and Jamarcus Russell. I might have gotten Russell. Quinn would have, Quinn would have totally. Escaped so, so when, me when you put but that's, that's awesome. terrible to be in that company. Yeah, when you're in that
1: company and you're paying a guy seventeen million to be your quarterback and he's in that company, I, I think that's frustrating. But the other big headline after the game was uh, Bill O'Brien was adamant that quote he will be back next season, uh, and I think the question is. Do we see
0: a change in the front office for the Texans? Does Rick Smith go? Brock Osweiler ought to be remembered ultimately as the nail in Rick Smith's coffin, I think. But, uh, but no, I mean, given the history, how can you imagine he's going to be anything but still here? He has survived everything. He is like the pro football version of like a, a, a cockroach surviving a nuclear apocalypse, right? His team has been through so <laughs> much overhaul and change, and he stays around, and we all know it's because he knows something about Bob McNair. He's got some sort of dirt on him or whatever. So no, I don't think there's anything. It's, no matter how poorly he does his job, He seems to be nice enough and have a relationship with the owner enough to be able to keep it. So I would say I'd have to imagine he'd be back. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what the Texans do in the offseason to see what adjustments they can make,
1: because I think next year the team to look out for in the AFC South is probably the Tennessee Titans. You know what they did this year, just uh, finishing with the same record as the Texans, I believe, both nine and seven. Uh, but I, I think they've got a lot of talent coming back. You know, they're set at the quarterback position. They're set at the running back position. They've got first round draft picks this year, which they don't need to fill, you know, in those gaps. They can get a defensive player. They can get offensive line, you know, boost that team up a little bit. So I think they're the team to watch out for. But uh, you know, one of the things that we're going to try to do here on the show a little bit more is we're going to dive into headlines. We're going to you know spend a little bit less time on each topic. So, uh, one of the next headlines that I want to discuss with you guys is Tom Brady's agent, Don Yi. Uh, he uh, had an article out this week. I, I guess it was publicized in like Forbes, Wall Street Journal, several publications throughout the country. Uh, but he's planning to launch a four-team football league as an option to college football, and it's going to pay uh, players fifty thousand dollars plus benefits and is scheduled to begin in two thousand eighteen. So. Uh, When I look at that article, I I, I think this is potentially uh, a developmental league. I mean, essentially something similar to what we see in the NBA. Uh, You're actually going to have salaried players. And I'm curious, with all the money uh, spent, you know, essentially the college football arms race with putting all this money into facilities, uh, you know, to recruiting, players are still not being paid, at least officially. Is this a viable alternative to college football?
0: I don't know. You talk about viability, and the article in question from the Wall Street Journal uh, mentions the long list of failed professional football leagues. And you're talking about World Football League, United States Football League, and perhaps most notably the XFL. And I know we were cracking up earlier watching right. some of those old XFL videos, where if, uh, if, if you're too young or if you just didn't watch it, like a lot of people didn't, uh, every football game began with not a kickoff, not a coin toss, but a scramble. scramble. Yeah. A freaking scramble where they have two grown men rush at the ball and try to grab it from one another. It's bizarre. It's all spectacle and it's crazy. But but this does not seem crazy. This seems viable to me on the surface. So you have a long history of failed uh, football leagues. This seems to work for me because it offers an alternative. I mean, I know a lot of kids that are big time high school athletes that I cover, and they don't really relish this prospect of being a student athlete. Their goal is to go pro. That's absolutely what they're interested in. This seems with the pay they get, you mentioned $50,000 benefits is great. Uh, and then obviously the opportunity to go to classes if you so desire. I can imagine a lot of really, really talented high kids going, hey, I don't want to go to college. I don't want to have to keep up grades. I don't want to have the kind of scrutiny. I, this is a better option for me. So I, I love the idea. It's a coin toss to me whether it will be successful or not. But I think it's absolutely vital. I just wonder what the NCAA will think or do about it. Because you're talking about essentially stealing the best and brightest uh, that, that they would have otherwise.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I look at a league like this, and yeah, the, the history certainly brings to mind the fact that these things typically don't work out. But this seems like a little bit different because it is age-restricted, and it seems to cater to... Uh, athletes that are just sort of not thrilled about going to school. That right. being said, I see this as maybe more of a magnet for guys that have tried to make it in big time programs and washed out for disciplinary reasons or uh, something else. And this is the you, next you could essentially best have a option. guy like
1: Cam Newton, yes. you know, who was kicked yes. out of Florida for stealing a laptop, I believe, and uh, you know he went to JUCO, I believe he went to what was it Blinn? He went yep. somewhere in Texas. That's right. Uh, he, he played there for a year before you know taking the SEC by storm, winning the Heisman Trophy at Auburn. But he's a guy. That could potentially go in this league you could potentially have guys that are kicked out of school for you know grades maybe uh, you know violence issues uh, potentially going to this league you could have uh we had uh britney wagner on from last chance U and east mississippi community college earlier this year and i i think we could see those types of players going into this league I, i i like the prospect of it and unlike you know the canadian football league unlike you know the xfl the usfl they're not competing with the NFL, and I think if they were, they would get crushed. Of course, I, I don't know that this is going to be a viable option. I do like that they're planning to start small, mm-hmm. and it's going to be regionally focused to Southern California, just four teams. I'm curious to see what the NCAA does because I, I think there's been a lot of push recently. Uh, you know, we've had the full cost of attendance now covered in scholarships, but a lot of people believe that athletes should be paid. Of course. Should be paid.
2: Well, yeah, and if, I think if schools weren't making so much money, if ESPN wasn't making so much money, people wouldn't raise this point. But you know, we're, we're talking about college football as an amateur sport. There's nothing amateur about college football. If, you, if you, you know college football players, they're huge, they're massive, they have strict training schedules. This is not the college football that people were playing 20, 20, even 15 years ago. It is an enterprise. And I think there is an argument to be made that players need to be paid. But the question of whether this will succeed, I think we've got to see it at the local level work out in Southern California.
0: How do you make money? Because the expenses are astronomical. It's like uh, somewhere between they estimate five and ten million dollars. I think that's per team too. I'm looking at it here, not uh, not just entirely. So that, that's a lot of money. How do you recoup that investment? Are there enough people that are going to be willing to patronize? Do you televise it? How much is that worth to you? There's a lot of financial questions I have about it. And you get into that idea of we're already oversaturated. The NFL itself is actually losing viewers, right? Which I mean, even five six years ago would have been uh, an impossible thought in a lot of people's mind. So it does seem like kind of of the wrong time to get in on a great idea but it seems like there's a lot of risk involved here but at the same time i mean we should reach out to him i'd love to hear more from you Ye yeah, about this there, idea. there are a lot of great
1: people involved and again uh don yi who is tom brady's agent uh you know shanahan uh, ed McCaffrey. so there are a lot of great nfl names involved so i, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens but let's move on to our next headline real quick sean mcveigh has has agreed to be the uh the new head coach for the los angeles rams at the age of just 30 how does that how does that make you feel guys He's our
0: age, and he's an NFL head coach. Does it make me feel. I guess it makes me feel unaccomplished, I suppose, but I don't really want to be a coach anyway. Uh, good for him. I don't know. It seems like, uh, you know, if, for, to be in Congress, right, you have to be, what is it, 40, 35? Depends uh, on if it's no, state you or be young. 25 for
2: Congress, yeah. and 35 for like Senate and President. Clearly, I don't know yeah. these yeah. facts,
0: but the, the idea is the same, right? There's like a, an age. Why, why would it be that way in coaching? I'm not even sure it should be that way uh, in the Senate or, Cong- or Congress of any sort, but I would like to see more young guys get these kind of opportunities. I mean, there's a lot of energy there. I think young guys have that kind of fire and drive, you know? I don't know why we think that you have to be older. You have to be sort of a stately type in order to be a good head coach. Well, the last young coach,
1: Lane Kevin, 31, Oakland Raiders. That didn't work out so well. Yeah,
2: Was it Lane Kevin
0: or was it the Raiders, though? The-
1: could have been a combination of both. probably.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, we're talking about the Los Angeles Rams. So uh, young coach, okay, great. But is that really the team that needs a young coach? I
1: mean, look at what he did with Washington as the offensive coordinator. Kirk Cousins was, what, a fourth-round draft pick, drafted the same year as Robert Griffin. And, you know, he was franchi- he got the franchise tag this year. He's probably going to get a $100 million contract this year uh, from the Redskins. So he developed him as a quarterback. And I think that speaks volumes. I mean, Washington was a good team this year on offense. I think it's a great
0: opportunity for him. And, you know, congrats to McGee- they for getting that job but what is it what does it take to be a great head coach so let's lay out what are the things that you have to be able to do well in order to be a great head coach develop players okay i i think that's one thing you know when i look at bill o'brien does for example, a head coach do that though or i, I mean there are, so. guys, there are player development staffs i mean not even a single guy but multiple guys that kind of handle that
1: i think i think development also goes down with like uh, you know the coaches uh, not necessarily the head coach but the people you hire and so i think you have to be able to make those decisions like bill o'brien for example i think he's done a great job uh, you know uh, on the defensive side of the ball, just look at his defensive staff, Mike Vrabel, who, uh, you know, he's, I believe, linebacker, defensive line coach, but he's gotten looks for defensive coordinator positions. And I think that uh, the lower people on your staff is what makes your team successful ultimately. And I'm kind of curious if, you know, what McVay can do, he just hired a great offensive coordinator. But the one question that I have for him is Los Angeles, that
0: media market, is that going to be too much for him at the age of 30? God, they're gonna love a young guy, and I think a young guy like him's gonna love the attention too. So I don't, I don't anticipate a problem there. Interesting that California would be the the two youngest head coaches ever hired, right? You <laughs> both go to California, but but I just okay. So we broke it down, right? I think obviously, uh, calling not calling plays in the game, but clock management, all those games, and then hiring people. That's really all it is: being a manager, being a boss, hiring CEO. the right staff. Right? Yeah.
2: Like, are you an effective people manager? I think that's pr- you know half of what makes a good head coach, and the other part being, are you an effective schemer from you know on both sides of the ball? Um, You know, to be honest, when I look at him being hired for the Rams, I think about everything else that's going on in that circus in Los Angeles, and he really won't be the focus of uh, media attention going into the 2017 season with the. Um, you know, a new team moving into the area. Um, I, I mean, who knows? I mean, what are they supposed to like share a stadium here? Until yeah. Both... So
1: actually, let that, that's a great segue to our next headline, and that's going to be the uh, the Chargers announcing that they are going to move from San Diego to Los Angeles, and uh, yeah. they do have plans to actually share a stadium uh, once it's built. Uh, I believe it's 2018, uh, but the Chargers are actually going to play in a soccer stadium where the LA, where the LA Galaxy play. It's going to hold thirty thousand people. An NFL team playing in a stadium that holds thirty thousand people. Uh, I know we've kind of discussed this via text message. Uh, You know, just a few years ago, LA had no football teams. Now they have two. Mm -hmm. Is that too much?
2: Oh, far too much. I went to grad school in the Los Angeles area. It is not a football town.
1: There was some old LA Rams stuff that you'd see. I think they are a football town. I just don't. I think there are so many other things going on in the city. You know, know, you've got the beach right there that... You can watch football on TV, but do I really want to make the drive? I would argue there's a fan base for
2: a football team there, but it is not a football town. It is Lakers. It is Kings. It is everything else. I mean, people go to UCLA games when they want to see football. Well, like, like, (laughs) no, Dallas is a football town. Houston is a football town. Uh, my gosh, Kansas City is a football town. Green Bay, know? yeah, exactly. Those are football towns. California is, is is a different culture. They they think about you know sports a little bit differently. Like when you ask like your average California sports fan, like what do you like to go? I like to go to USC games. I like to go to UCLA games. Like no one talks about. Oh God, I love the Chargers. Oh God, I love the Raiders. Like it's just not on their radar. Like it is here. Yeah, and
1: it's interesting. You know, the Chargers are moving because they couldn't get a stadium. Funded in san diego and i i don't blame the taxpayers for wanting to pay for you know a multi-billion dollar stadium when you have a billionaire owner i mean right. uh, but the spanos family i think that they were disappointed that they did have to make that move from san diego to la i don't i i think this is a problem with the nfl like a few I, I i think i read something that there's been like seven teams that have moved uh you know in the past like 14 years or something like that uh, or have filed for moving. I, I don't know. The, the, the number is crazy. But uh, another team that is also potentially on the move is the Oakland Raiders. You know, mm-hmm. They're another team that hasn't gotten the stadium funding that they've wanted. I mean, you, you see Levi's Stadium built in San Francisco for the 49ers. Great, beautiful new stadium that's going to host the college football championship game, I believe, next season uh, out, out there in Santa Clara. Uh, but Oakland has not been able to fund a stadium, whereas now Las Vegas is courting you know the Raiders and potentially going to build them a two billion dollar stadium. This would be the second professional sports team to uh, you know go to Las Vegas in the past uh, few years. We obviously know that the uh, the NHL granted a new expansion team uh, for Las Vegas, and so I, I I actually like that move. I think that's a smart move. I think that the Raiders will do very
0: very well in Las Vegas. It fits too, just thematically, spiritually, philosophically, it seems like it's a really great match between those uh, those two ideas, those two teams. You know, I, I love that. And then you've got
1: such a great young team. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you've got Carr coming back, uh, you know, from an injury, but I think he's going to be there for the long haul and, and, you know, that team. But I think the one difference is I I believe the Raiders are going to file the paperwork and uh, I believe the league owners are going to vote on it in March. And I believe 24 of the owners have to vote yes. And I think that uh, one of the Big owners behind is actually Jerry Jones and so I think this will pass and I think uh, you know Las Vegas and the state of Nevada have been very supportive about wanting to put up funds for this which is surprising because you you look all around the country and and cities are saying no we don't want to build you a stadium that's why the Rams moved from St. Louis to LA Uh, but I think this has the potential to be very very huge for the city Uh, but the owner uh, for Oakland did announce that they will play in Oakland until that stadium is built so I, I I I see a lot of success there.
3: Yeah,
0: absolutely. This is
2: certainly encouraging for the city of Las Vegas because everyone remembers their last uh, pro football team was, of course, the XFL uh, Las Vegas Outlaws. So um, hopefully uh, the Raiders can upstage the Outlaws in terms of track record and history. I think they will. (laughs) But I think, uh,
0: you know... Did you see the the Lakers-Clippers game where they debuted the Chargers' new logo? Yeah. It was booed heartily. Yeah, which is weird. I, mean, I boo there. I don't understand why, but apparently it was a big, big deal. And they yeah, booed the tight end as well. There were a lot
1: of uh, great memes on social media this week, uh, you know, with different sports teams uh, making comments. I believe the Tampa Bay Lightning, uh-huh. the, NFL, the NHL franchise, uh, sent a tweet out to the uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers saying, hey, I thought we were just friends. I don't know. <laughs> just so many like different innuendos. But uh, moving on real quick to our next headline, uh, the World Cup is actually expanding from 32 to 48 teams by 2026. And uh, kind of big news for Fox. Uh, which has the TV rights in the United States for the World Cup. And so essentially, uh, they're getting free games on their network because to me, that seems like a a no-brainer good deal for Fox. But this could also take place in the United States. I, I, I know, I'm sorry, the United States and North America are projected to host the World Cup in 2026. And... Uh, they, they have projections for this, or they? They, they actually do. Wow, I, I know we don't talk much about soccer. You have money writing on it? We no, no. <laughs> I, I don't. We don't talk about soccer much on the podcast. No, we don't. Is for this a good, good reason? Yeah, is this a good move? A this move? has almost <laughs> been too much for me. All right, could
0: not care less, but it's great. Uh, I mean, it's more teams that we'll be able to beat, right? I mean, because when you're talking about expanding, you're gonna let in worse teams that would be teams that would be ranked below uh, the U.S. So I would love to see them be able to play some more teams and win against them in theory, but I mean, you're gonna have more European teams, teams coming play. in, you're gonna have more teams from Asia coming in, which I think.
1: Uh, in some respects, are better than the product that the United States has put on the, on the pitch the last few years. But let's move on to our next headline real quick. Uh, Floyd Mayweather Jr. Uh, and Conor McGregor, they're actually talking about a boxing match. And, and I think there's a lot of likes to this. Dana White, president of the UFC, has said that he's going to pay each guy $25 million out of his own pocket to get this thing together. Uh, I know we don't talk about boxing UFC a lot on the show, but... I can't imagine the press conferences for that. I mean, just the smack talk between those two going back and forth. I mean, already on social media, it's been great. Is this a fight that you guys want to see? These are two
0: very polarizing figures. Uh, Some people really, really support them. You know, Money Mayweather, he has that whole crew and that sort of swagger I see a lot of people adopt on Twitter as as though it were their own or whatever. Obviously, Conor McGregor's got his fans as well. They are two of the most, um, uh, I would say, conceited, obnoxious, arrogant people ever. And I actually happen to uh, enjoy Floyd Mayweather, his, uh, his, his antics and so forth, not beating women so much, but they're two hated people. Who do you think is more hated? Who do you think the world would be rooting for in that?
1: mcgregor easily
0: you think so yeah
1: he doesn't he doesn't have the domestic violence issues
0: on his yeah, side that's a fair point but i still would love to see anybody he's just so arrogant to want to take on floyd mayweather one of the greatest of all time particularly a defensive boxer we're talking about this the so, so much so on. much speed exactly and if you're going to take him on in a boxing match i think honestly on the street conor mcgregor probably could handle floyd mayweather inside a ring with a referee no nah, not nah, no chance i mean i don't think it'll leave me close
2: all right, for the uninitiated, is this will this be the same thing as a Mayweather
1: Pacquiao? Is this uh, I like think a version bigger two? what? I think it'd be bigger. I because would be bigger than be Yeah, because think about it. UFC, I think, has been drawing great ratings on, on TV. Boxing has kind of been faltering a little bit. Uh, I, for like 50 years. I, right, and so <laughs> you have arguably the biggest name in boxing and the biggest name in UFC coming together. Gosh, this is a pay-per-view dream. I mean... I, Whose Q rating do you think is higher at this point? Who. I think that uh, it's got to be it's got to be Mayweather. Yeah, because I mean, just the history, and the,
0: the longevity there. I believe he
1: took like a hundred million dollar payday from the uh, the Pacquiao fight, mm-hmm. which is insane. I think the most that uh, McGregor's ever been paid is something like you know north of three million, so it's not not a crazy number, but uh, very interesting. But let's move on real quick to our uh, final headline of the uh, the day. Uh, what if I were to tell you mm-hmm. that there was an international politician? who allegedly went to Russia and uh just coincidentally happened to stay in the uh the same hotel room that a former head of state or current head of state had uh resided in and then uh, apparently this uh politician hired prostitutes you're blushing you just can't even handle this and apparently these prostitutes peed on the bed in which a politician had stayed out. What if I told you that this actually happened? Would would you believe it? Totally possible, highly improbable,
2: and of if, course, we're talking about the Donald J. Trump, President-elect of the United States.
0: Yeah, who cares? If it's true, it's one of the least offensive things he's done. Honestly that that's an interesting point
2: yeah i was gonna say like like it's salacious
0: people love to talk about it but it doesn't have any impact or merit or matter i I honestly like you hear it what do you think what's your instinct i actually i wasn't shocked it's almost too um detailed and absurd to not be true to me i think so uh, that marks the question and i think
1: the biggest question for me is from a journalistic perspective uh cnn and buzzfeed were both in the headlines this past week cnn reported the dossier that there was potentially information that the Russians had that could be incriminating towards Donald Trump. Uh, BuzzFeed decided that they were going to publish a 35-page dossier that included all of these allegations uh, that they said weren't verified. New okay. York Times came out and said that we were not going to give justice to a report, which we can't verify. From a journalistic perspective, I, I'm, I'm curious from your, both Jeremy and Kevin, on this. I Only think one C- of us is a journalist, I, but go ahead. I think CNN made the right decision and saying that there is a dossier out there. BuzzFeed, I thought, was completely out of line.
0: Whatever, man. I think I think if you're transparent, like they were, they said they were unsubstantiated, unverified claims, and they were just publishing because many people were talking about it. With that disclaimer, which I believe is honest, uh, go ahead and throw it out there. Why not? Well, hold on, but like, why publish it now? Like, why publish it right before the inauguration? And to be fair, like they've been
2: sitting on this. Like the media in Weeks. general, like, for, well, no, some people say months. Allegedly, John McCain handed this off to the CIA or something like that, like back in September or August or something. I mean, it, it's been out there for a while, but it's been unsubstantiated. Um, this stuff does happened before presidential inaugurations. I don't know if you guys remember this, but back in 1980, there was some report. I wasn't alive. Yeah, Oh no, no, not remember, (laughs) but as students of of history, like I know you are, uh, back in 1980, there was some unsubstantiated report, unverified, that George H.W. Bush had got hopped in a spy plane to go meet with the Iranians to embarrass Carter ahead of the presidential election. Of course, totally unverified. Uh, Was that also
0: opposition research?
2: I guess. I don't know. But point point being is that, you know, this stuff comes out. It's not unlikely or, you know, not uh, totally... Out of the blue, but what I find is like I didn't know BuzzFeed did news anymore. Like I thought, thought they fired their news staff. So when I saw this, they, I was they like, they oh. lay off a lot of their news. Staff. Yeah, it does exactly. Not I was like, a I lot know. of
0: manpower to release a document. Though, fair <laughs> enough. Fair. So,
2: but 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 you know, to be fair to the people criticizing BuzzFeed, like I don't even really think they do news. So I don't think it's fair to hold them accountable to the same standards. Now CNN, yeah. on the other hand, it was an you know, Onion was, article.
0: Did you see it where uh, a guy was a BuzzFeed report quote unquote, was captured in uh, Afghanistan, had to explain to them what 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 his role was what reporting was i make listicles exactly that that word was included in the article as you might
1: imagine so anyways this is the uh the last week that president barack obama is in office and uh i'm kind of curious he's a sports guy oh yeah big sports guy loves basketball loves golf what are some of the sports moments that you're going to take away from his presidency? I don't. Want, I don't want to get into his like legacy as a politician, but like specifically sports.
0: I every year uh, when I filled out my brackets for March Madness, I measured my success against uh, picking against Barack Obama, and he publicized his always. How did you do? Uh, I think I think I beat him every time actually. I don't think I ever lost to him. He was not very good at picking and I'm not very good either. We're both, you know, kind of middle of the pack or whatever. You're essentially like my... throwing darts. I yeah. mean it, it's a crapshoot for the for, for for March Madness. Well, except throwing darts actually requires a lot of skill and you know there's they're that's good fair. dart players. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. But that was that's my big sports thing. I always liked having that. That was kind of cool that a president of the of the you know uh, United States, a very powerful, large country, would go out and fill out brackets and do something. I don't see Trump doing that kind of stuff. He can't even use a computer. That's fair.
1: What about you?
2: Yeah, when, when I think about uh, Obama's legacy, one thing I would like to see him do, I won't take, of, take credit for this idea, he should resign his last day in office and let Joe Biden be president for heard a, a lot of I've heard a lot of people say that. I would love to see that happen, just so all of the Trump 45th president stuff is just like, you know totally useless on inauguration day <laughs> oh, and gosh, not to mention would be, would like be joe biden think about all the biden memes that we're gonna miss now that obama's out of office i, I like joe biden and yeah. I, I
1: thought it was great that he got the presidential medal of freedom this past week i thought mm-hmm. that was a classy move by barack obama to do that for him and I, I think that just the shock on his face when that announcement was made was just was, was amazing and i think biden's probably looking at himself right now knowing that if he would have thrown his hat in the ring he'd probably be the president right now i i, I honestly think that he would have beat hillary I think, but, you know, I, I totally understand that there was a lot of mutual respect between Biden and Hillary, but I, I think we'd probably be looking at him as the 45th president. But uh, when I look from a sports perspective for Barack Obama, uh, I'm going to go down to one of his blunders, I guess. Yeah, and, okay. uh, you know, he was president George W. Bush. One of my most memorable sports moments for him was throwing out that first pitch after nine 11. And, you know, there's a documentary on ESPN about it and, yeah, and it's phenomenal. It was, it was a strike. Amazing pitch. Uh, Barack Obama. Not he's athletic plays basketball. Sweet jump shot too. He, he's a great golfer terrible at throwing out first pitch at baseball games i mean he he's atrocious uh but you know that that will kind of stick out you know what, what
0: i recall from the documentary though is how much bush cared about oh yeah he uh, was performing. practicing oh yeah and practiced a lot which took away from his uh time to pay attention to other parts of his duty i, I think it actually that. speaks ill of bush that he was so locked in and able to perform he, he's also he's also a baseball guy i mean he was he was a part
1: owner for the texas rangers so it's not like it was something completely different i think i think you know President Obama probably never played baseball. I mean, he's he's got like a basketball, like a golfer type body. He's not he he's not built like a pitcher. But uh, yeah, I also think it's cool. I, I I love the traditions when the president brings in the team that won the championship. I think that's always a cool tradition. But
0: why? Well, I don't I don't have I'm not opposed to it at all. I, I, know it I think it's just a cool I, I think pictures. it's a
1: cool opportunity for you to win a championship and to go meet the president of the United States. I mean, this is something.
0: Was Reagan the one that started this, I believe? I, I'm not I'm not hundred percent goes back away. But is, I know yeah. it goes
1: back a while. But I, I think it's just a cool tradition. I feel like
0: did. Nixon was calling plays in the Super Bowl or something like that, as I recall. So there's been a long history between politicians. I mean, that's 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 a legit story that I think has been verified, if I'm not mistaken. I need to actually look it up before I say that. But yeah, there's a long standing relationship between politicians and sports. Uh I'm not sure exactly why. I don't think there's any reason for the the championship team to go visit the White House. But it's always cool to see the pictures and see how impressed the players who are often very young men, right. often very young African American men lately too. So getting to meet with the first black president, I mean, it's it's a cool thing, I guess. I I can't imagine how it was pitched when it first got started, but I'm I'm, not, I'm glad we have it for sure. Yeah,
1: very cool. So Barack Obama out as 44th president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, or maybe Joe Biden as the uh, 45th president. We'll see if uh, Jeremy's plan actually comes to fruition, but we've got a great show on deck. We've got Todd Callis, Houston Astros, play-by-play voice, and also Shehan uh, Jayarajah from SEC Country joining us here in just a few moments. We'll talk Astros baseball. We'll talk Jeff Bagwell, who potentially could be going into the Hall of Fame this week. Also, we'll discuss uh, you know the, the role that Todd Callis had Uh, you know, auditioning for the Astros broadcaster's role. Uh, But Sheehan is also going to discuss uh, a lot of stuff on the SEC, whether Deshaun Watson uh, can be a valid NFL quarterback, if he can be a good Mm -hmm. NFL quarterback. Also, we discussed a little bit of Matt Rule and Baylor football. So without further ado, it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed.
2: You're listening to the Weekly Brew.
1: Joining us now on the Weekly Brew podcast is Todd Callis, the new play-by-play voice for the Houston Astros TV broadcast, which can be found on Root Sports. And Todd, uh, first off, congratulations on the new role, and welcome back to Houston.
3: Thank you very much. It's very exciting to be back, and um, it's something I never imagined might happen. But when I heard about this opportunity in the offseason, I was very excited. And uh, great to be back in Houston, and great to be back working with the Houston Astros where my dad started.
1: Yeah, let's kind of talk about that for a moment. I mean, you were the you know you you were with the Tampa Bay Rays organization for nearly two decades, and you posted a video on Twitter in December thanking fans, the club, the community for their support. You also stated that it would take an extraordinary opportunity to pull you away from Tampa. Uh, for those that might not be familiar with your story, or perhaps your father Harry, uh, what made this a dream opportunity for you?
3: Well, it's uh, for a lot of reasons, Austin. I mean, first of all, because I was born there, it's great to be able to return home. That's first and foremost. But I've always wanted to do a full season of Major League Baseball play-by-play, and I've had a partial season with the Phillies on TV, and I've done a lot of pre and post-game work and fill in play-by-play for the Mets on the radio and the Rays on TV and radio. But I've never had that full season play-by-play opportunity. So when that came about, uh, when I heard Bill was retiring and I – I consider Bill a friend even prior to this, so I'm I'm very excited for him to enjoy the next chapter in his life, and hope he's around the stadium a lot. But when I heard he was retiring. I thought this could be really, really good, and I never imagined myself leaving Tampa Bay. I just love this market. I love working for the Rays, and even though I wasn't doing play-by-play full time here, I still was getting my 15 or 20 games in, and I was pretty happy here, and pretty content. Uh, so anyway, when this opportunity came about, I'm like, I got to take a look at this. This could be really good, and the more I went through the process and met with Reed Ryan and met with other people, the more I thought this would be absolutely perfect. So um, the fact that I'm coming back to Houston, working in a great stadium like Minute Maid Park, looking forward to reconnecting with Astros fans, and lastly, but certainly not least, having a team that really has the potential to get to the postseason next season and for many more years to come after that, it's kind of a dream opportunity for me at this point.
0: Well, Todd, the media sphere is uh, completely a buzz about uh, you, the new role for you, uh, what you're bringing to the table for us here in Houston. We're, we're all excited to have you, of course, and there are a lot of articles written to that effect. And to wit, uh, bizjournals.com, the Houston Biz Journal, Jack Whithouse wrote an article which oddly uh, included the hospital you were born in. It's just weird what information gets out about people sometimes. But uh, but more interesting, I thought, was the uh, anecdote about how you and your father, Harry, uh, actually overlapped during the 2008 World Series. You got to call uh, an ending of the game together. Which is kind of a unique experience. I wonder if you could speak to that. What was that moment like being able to work with your father in that capacity on that big of a stage?
3: That was as good as it gets for me. I can't imagine anything in broadcasting topping that moment because we had worked kind of side by side when I worked for the Phillies for a couple of years, but we were never on the same broadcast together. I did games for, at that point, a company called Prism, and dad worked over the air and worked on the radio. So. Um, We we were never in the same booth at the same time. We did a couple of spring training games and maybe some fill-in work here and there. But to work a World Series game when I was working for the Rays and he was working for the Phillies was pretty remarkable, especially when you consider prior to that 08 season, the Rays had never won more than 70 games at any point in their franchise history. So 10 years of never winning more than 70 games. And then in 2008, uh, by some incredible confluence of events, they had a – remarkable season, and they get to the World Series, and they play the Phillies, and Dad had never called a a World Series uh, call in his Phillies career, because prior to that, the last time the Phillies were in the World Series, uh, they didn't allow the local guys to to do the game, so he had never called a World Series title, because in 80, they couldn't do the game, so uh, he got to call that against the Rays, we worked together in the booth, and it was a phenomenal opportunity. And then, unfortunately, uh, Dad would pass away in April of the following year. So it's kind of like one of those meant-to-be, stars-aligned moments that uh, I will cherish forever.
0: So you're coming in to replace Bill Brown, uh, a long-tenured, beloved figure in this city. Uh, he's actually on episode 66 of this podcast, a terrific interview, and terrific guy. Uh, is there any pressure in that with, with a guy that is that so, uh, has so much history and has built up so much credit and faith with the fan base? Do you worry about catering to that audience, or do you try to put your own stamp on it and really make it your own?
3: That's a good question. I think people will probably in Los Angeles wonder the same about uh, joe davis replacing finn scully and in san diego uh you know replacing dick Enberg, and um don orsillo will be doing that so yeah there's definitely going to be a change for astros fans they've been used to bill brown and brownie is, is a phenomenal broadcaster you know he didn't get the national uh publicity that those other guys got especially vin for uh retiring after an unbelievable career but he deserved it i mean 30 years and he was just he was so solid and so funny and so good all through those years. I really enjoyed his broadcast. I really uh, have gotten to know Brownie over the years, and um, it's going to be a big chair to fill. But to go back to your question, I, I can't really cater my broadcasting style to anything other than what I know, and um, it's going to be my style, and hopefully the fans enjoy it. I, I think it's a kind of a conversational. Uh, enjoy the game of baseball, sprinkle in uh, some humor. And I know with Jeff Blum, that won't be a problem. So I'm really looking forward to working with Blummer. And, uh, again, there's going to be a big transition for Astros fans who have been used to one particular voice for the last 30 years. I know it happened in Philadelphia uh, for all the Phillies fans when my dad passed. And uh, it's just part of the game. A baton gets passed, and hopefully uh, the Astros fans will embrace me uh, through the years as well.
1: Yeah, you just mentioned Jeff Blum, and you know one of my favorite things about watching Astros games on Root Sports in the last few years is when he's on the broadcast. I think he's a, a great analyst. I love his insight. I love his humor, and especially the banner between him and Julia Morales. I just think it's it's uh, quite comical. But uh, you know, you actually auditioned with Jeff, if, if if what I'm reading is correct. And what did that process look like? And do you think your past relationship with him, you know, kind of overlapping in that 2004 season, kind of helps with that chemistry? And how do you build chemistry? chemistry leading up to the season?
3: I think that's a good... I, I think you have to build chemistry. I think it just comes from uh, being friends outside of the booth, too, and that comes with time. So uh, I, you're right. I did get to know Jeff a little bit when he was a player with the Rays in uh, in 2004, and then I got to know him more as a fellow broadcaster the past few seasons. And I agree with what you said. I really enjoy his broadcasting style. I thought, uh, you know, with Julia as well. I've gotten to know Julia very well through the years, and I think you know, she may be as talented as anybody who does her role in Major League Baseball. So it's going to be a fun broadcast booth. But uh, I think the chemistry just comes with hanging out, you know, and getting to know each other. The fact that we have 10 spring training games that we're going to broadcast en route, ramping up to the season, is going to allow us to kind of find our rhythm and find our cadence together and get to know uh, how each other likes certain things. I, I, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I've watched probably to this point a half a dozen or 10 Astros broadcasts uh, from the past year. And uh, that really helped me prepare for what turned out to be the mock broadcast. that was part of the process for us uh, going through this search for the new play-by-play guy. And uh, I worked with Jeff on those, uh, on that telecast. They tell, told us in advance what game it would be. we we kind of watched the game off of a monitor and called it on headsets uh, like we would if we were watching live action. So uh, that was kind of how the process went down there. And it's uh, that was our first broadcast together, I guess, even though it didn't go over the air. And I'm looking forward to our next uh, real broadcast uh, in late February, early March, when the team plays down in Florida.
1: So I'm kind of curious, like how that works. I mean, you're broadcasting game off a monitor; it's got to be a little bit different, knowing the result. And you know, also you had mentioned broadcasting ten games at spring training. You know, pitchers and catchers report in less than five weeks, and uh, outside of you know watching old film, I mean, what can you do to study the team so that you know them more a little bit better i mean i imagine you probably weren't able to watch as many games because of your duties with the rays is that correct
3: yeah i mean you you lock into 150 telecasts with the rays and it's hard to see every other team but um yeah i have watched started to watch as many astros games as i can i'm probably um somewhere in the in i I had six to ten going into that process of the interview and i'm probably somewhere in the low teens right now i'll continue to watch that um Pretty much just watching the the starters and the the bullpen guys and watching their their pitches and what kind of they go to in certain situations just so I know what their repertoire is. It's one thing to know a guy has fastball, slider, uh, split change, but it's another thing to actually watch him and and incorporate those pitches and how he he likes to use them. Um, But, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that. And uh, and I think getting ready for a season, Mm -hmm. you really start to, to dive in more and more into the team history and learn as much about that. Uh, But I am not going to know as much in in the first few years as Bill Brown did. I didn't live through those years like Brownie did, so I can only read about it and watch as much as I can uh, to get ready for a season. But uh, also part of your question was how do you prepare for that mock broadcast knowing the results, and that was kind of unique as well uh, because you you, you already know what happened, and so you try and pretend like you're still doing this fresh, and even though you know what the ultimate result is, you try and broadcast it as if – uh, you're just preparing for any other game. So it was unique in a sense, uh, but I really thought that the process that the Astros ran was as thorough and most fair of the few that I've been a part of prior to this. And I even said that you know, before I got in the Final Five or even the final uh, person being named to, to the broadcast team. I really thought they did a thorough job and was a really good format in, in trying to pick out who the announcers should be.
0: Well, I think those of us that follow the Astros find ourselves in uh... – a similar position as we have the last couple years. You know, there's been Sports Illustrated buzz about this team, World Series projections, all of that. I don't know if you read the Players' Tribune, um, but if you do, uh, there was an article by Carlos Beltran. I guess he had dinner with Jose Altuve and Carlos Correa, and he said, quote, Astros fans, I'm here to tell you it's going to be a special year. Mark it down. I can already tell after just one dinner uptown. Uh, do you buy into that? I mean, there was a flurry of offseason moves. There certainly seems to be some hype and excitement like there has been in the past couple of years. But do you think that, given everything that's transpired in the offseason, this might be the year they break through and actually do something special?
3: Absolutely, and I did read that article that you referenced. I, I really I liked what I read. I mean, I was that got me even more pumped up because Beltron's a guy uh, who kind of cut his teeth with different organizations and was with the Astros a dozen years ago, and here he is coming back and really embracing the leadership role. The fact that he, you know, sought out Altuve and Correa and had dinner with them as soon as he got into town. You know, he's going to be a big factor in the clubhouse and uh, getting a guy like Josh Reddick. Who is kind of a has a, a really good personality and has been a leader with the A's through the years, and then Brian McCann, uh, even though you know with the Braves and with New York, uh, a lot of great years with those two teams, and now he's going to be a big part of that clubhouse and a big leader on the team. So, yeah, there's it's warranted, I, I think. You know, if you're A.J. Hinch, you try not to have expectations too high because you probably go down from there. But I think this team is a legit contender. If you look at the top teams in the American League coming into the season, I think you have to put the Astros right up there. A lot of people like what Boston did with acquiring Chris Sale, and certainly Cleveland will be good again this year. Uh, But in the AL West, I would say the Astros are, if not people's top pick, certainly in the top two.
1: Yeah, I mean, that lineup is just absolutely ridiculous. I, I look at it and there's really not an easy out. I mean, you've got Springer and Bregman at the top without Altuve sitting in the three spot. And then, you know, Guriel, a guy who tore it up in Cuba, uh, potentially batting toward the bottom of the lineup. I mean, it's just not going to be easy for pitchers. But when I look at the Astros, that seems to be the one question mark that they have heading into 2017. And that's the starting rotation. And, you know, outside of, uh, you know, Keichel and McCullers, are we going to see the Astros try to make a move to you know potentially get more help or is it just, we're going to ride on this offense and hope that they can produce?
3: Um, I think they're still trying and from what I read and I, and I know as much about what's going on as you guys do, probably reading and diving into whatever rumors are out there, but uh, according to Peter Gammons and others, it sounded like they made a pretty strong play at the race Chris Archer and, and that didn't pan out at least to this point and I'm sure they're going to make a pretty strong play with Jose Quintana and we'll see what happens there but if they go to the post with their current configuration uh that's pretty much the same group they had maybe minus a scott casimir a couple years ago when they reached the playoffs so i think you go into it with a lot of confidence with the group they have now on board and if it shows itself in the first half of 2017 if they don't make a move prior to spring training and they go through the first half of of 17 and they're scoring five or 5.2 runs a game and they're still you know, not in a, a position they want to be, then maybe you, you look at the trade deadline and adding an arm at that point. But um, I think right now you go to the post and if those guys stay healthy, you know, the Kai Coles and McCullers and Byers, I'm looking forward to seeing what Charlie Morton does in, in the new league and Colin McHugh. I mean, those are some names that you feel pretty good about. And then you've got, you know, Musgrove and others that did a great job out of the bullpen and good start. You've got others back there uh, who could fill in as well. So, I'm curious to see if they make a move. And if they don't, I think they've had plenty uh, at the post to start
1: the year. Yeah. A lot of excitement around the Astros program this year. And uh, one of your former colleagues in Tampa Bay, uh, Dwayne Stats, he said that I don't like the idea of losing him in reference to you over here, Uh, but he was born in Astro. We found a picture of him when he was two years old, wearing a little Astros uniform and swinging a bat. And uh, he also went on to say that I'd hire him to do anything if it were broadcasting or if I ran a shoe store, Uh, you know, Growing up with the history in Houston, uh, what was one Astros memory that kind of stuck out for you?
3: <laughs> it's funny because I don't remember a lot about <laughs> Houston. I do remember. I, I remember as a little toddler going to games at the and Obviously, that was the first place I ever saw base a baseball game. Um, I remember like the exploding scoreboard still is kind of somewhere tucked in in the back of my mind. I remember, you know, the snorting bull and the and the you know, the good the Cowboys shooting the gun and all that stuff going on in the Astronome. I remember Astro World going there and uh, that's about it. I don't remember a lot as a, as a kid. and um, I do remember that Dad was the broadcaster and I do remember that the Astros were a new team having turned over from the Colt 45s, but uh, beyond that, uh, I don't have a ton of memories from back then, but uh, it'll be good to, to develop new memories uh, when I move in, into town soon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the memories that I had growing up as a child was, uh, you know, Jeff Bagwell. And I just remember that 1994 season that he had that was just cut short due to the strike. But uh, he's almost a lock to get into the Hall of Fame uh, this week is when it'll be announced. And I'm kind of curious, what type of interactions did you ever have with Bagwell? Whether it was, uh, you know, working in Philly, working in Tampa, or what kind of player did he mean to this city?
3: My interaction was limited. I just knew him from watching him and really appreciated his talents. And and you hope, I mean, it's coming up next week or a couple weeks, you hope that uh, all these uh, ballots that they start to to tally going into the process are accurate because you'd hate for a guy to to seem like he's a lock and then not get in. But he really does deserve it. He was just such a fixture. He and Biggio for all those years, just just ran the show. I mean, they were so good, and there was – I I think there certainly Jeff deserves to be in there, and hopefully it happens. I believe it's January 18th is when the vote is. Hopefully it happens on the 18th for him.
1: Fingers crossed here at the Weekly Brew Podcast. But, again, we've got Todd Callis, the new play-by-play voice for the Houston Astros, and you can find him on Root Sports. And, uh, Todd, you're also pretty active on social media, and I know the Astros are going to be sending you around on this caravan tour here in the spring. But for those that are interested in kind of uh, following your journey uh, as you, you know, come back home to Minute Maid Park and also through that caravan series, what is the best way for them
3: to connect with you on social media? Um, I had to change my Twitter name because I was Tampa Bay PK. (laughs) So we did a little fan poll since I'm going to be leaving the area, we did a little fan poll and uh, real Todd Callis ended up being the winner. So I'm at real Todd Callis fans can connect with me through that pretty much. Uh, I have a Facebook, but I, I use that more for personal stuff. So you know, same with Instagram, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be around a lot. I'm going to bounce in there for the entire caravan series. I believe uh, it starts Tuesday in Houston of next week. And then I'll be in different cities on Wednesday and Thursday and then Saturday at the FanFest, which hopefully will get a lot of fans out here, there's a lot of fans already pre-registered. And, and if fans haven't already, they can go on to Astros.com and go ahead and get their voucher to show up at fan fest, 11 to 4 o'clock uh, a week from Saturday. So I'm just going to be shaking a lot of hands and meeting a lot of people and uh, trying to hang out in Houston and look for a place to live and, and really get to be part of the community so that when we uh, – take things off April third. I won't feel like a complete stranger in Houston, and it'll be good to return home for sure.
0: Boy, that was quite a saga uh, on Twitter. Coming up with the new name there, eventually landed on Real Todd Callis. I'm curious, did you reach out to at Todd Callis and uh, make him an offer for the handle?
3: You know, it's funny. I tried to reach out to them, and you can only direct message on Twitter if they follow you. And he he or she used to follow me, and now they've kind of disappeared. <laughs> they, they don't they don't have one follower. So I think, and I try. I contacted Twitter about acquiring that account. And they said that you could only acquire it if they are um, if not only imitating you but but throwing stuff out there that would not be – that would be putting you in a bad light, something to that effect. So, because they weren't doing that, they were legally allowed to keep their Twitter names. So that's when I had to put out that they wanted to find a new one, rather. <laughs> that's a great story.
1: So, if you're out there listening to this podcast right now, uh, go ahead and report Todd Callis' spam. So, this Todd uh, could go ahead and get the uh, the actual account. But, uh, Todd, it's been great having you on the Weekly Brew podcast. And uh, we appreciate your time and uh, look forward to seeing you on Root Sports in 2017.
3: Absolutely, guys. I hope uh, I'll say hi to you if I'm in town next week. Hopefully, you're in are or one of the caravan stops. I appreciate it. Awesome. Kevin. Nice to talk to you guys.
1: You're listening to the Weekly Brew. Joining us now on the Weekly Brew podcast is Shahan Araja, who currently covers all things Southeastern Conference for SEC country. And like myself and Jeremy, he's also a Baylor grad. And uh, Shahan, uh, thanks for joining us this week on the show. And I have to know, how surprised were you by last week's outcome as Clemson upset with Summit pegged as, you know, perhaps one of the best Alabama teams of all time?
4: You know, what's funny is, uh, and thanks for having me on, by the way, uh, you know what's funny is just looking at that matchup. I mean, we saw the national championship game, you know, last year at the beginning of 2016, and it was so close. Um, but at the same time, you looked at this Alabama team, you, there were some flaws, you know, especially with the downfield passing game, but this seemed like a defense that couldn't be beaten. I mean, nobody had really had consistent success against Alabama's defense all year long. Uh, and then all of a sudden, again, you have Deshaun Watson, one of the great college performances of all time against defense. Um, yeah, I mean, I was surprised. I, I wasn't shocked. I did think it was possible. I thought it was a little more possible than maybe some other people did, but but I definitely was surprised.
2: Speaking of the matchup between Clemson and Alabama, Deshaun Watson definitely made an impact in that game. How do you think he's going to fare uh, with the NFL on the horizon for him?
4: Yeah, I think that Deshaun just has that X factor, you know, that, that playmaking ability. Um, And and now, granted, there are guys who've had that, obviously, you know, look back at another great championship game, Vince Young, who didn't necessarily translate to the league. But uh, his ability both in and out of the pocket, I think, is something that can really translate to the NFL. Um, And and I think that some people have tried to compare him maybe with his ability to move outside of the pocket to Johnny Manziel. I think that, one, he's much more of a uh, consistent passer inside the pocket, which I think translates much more favorably. And I also think that he's better at using his offensive line instead of, you know, Manziel would just kind of run and the offensive lineman would have to block wherever they could. And I think that Watson's a little better at using uh, the pocket, using the offensive line to his advantage. Um, I do think, though, that he'll be in the best situation if he doesn't have to start right away. Because, again, jumping from, you know, a little more of a spread to to more of an NFL team, that's a tough transition for any quarterback. You know, we've seen – super talented guys over the years you know obviously Aaron Rodgers is one who just sat out a year or two and eventually turned into great players and I think that that would be ideal for him I don't think he'll get that ability because I think he'll be picked in the top five but I am high on his potential and it really just is up to, to Deshaun to see what happens in the future
2: uh, definitely I, I I see that potential as well but one thing in thinking about where Deshaun could improve um our turnover is going to be an issue for him in the pros
4: I think especially early in his career they will be, which, I mean, and, and I'm on the record saying having a bunch of interceptions early in your career I don't think is the biggest deal because I think you have to have that confidence to throw the ball down the field. But, yeah, I mean, I think it definitely will, especially early in his career, because, again, he ended up finishing, I believe, with 15 interceptions. And, I mean, that's that's not a small number. That's, that's a significant number. That's one per game that he played, and he had multiple games with multiple interceptions. I mean, again, he managed to... Uh, to avoid them in the national championship game. But yeah, I think that will be an issue. And I think that's something that, you know, it'll take him maybe a year or two to, to break out of that. And and the other thing is, with that is I think that he just needs to sometimes let the game come to him a little bit more and hopefully when he's surrounded by NFL talent he'll learn how to do that
1: yeah I think he's got a lot of potential and I I loved watching him play especially against when you know when the lights were the brightest he always seemed to excel I think he had something like 800 passing yards against Alabama both this year and last year's game but I think our listeners kind of know that we've discussed gambling on the show quite frequently and with that being said uh, Vegas odds have come out for the 2017 season and of course Alabama is early favorite at four to one to win the college football playoff how big of a step does Jalen need to take in 2017 to keep the Crimson Tide as a playoff contender? What teams, if any, can challenge Alabama and the SEC next season?
4: Well, I think you, you look at the SEC right now. I mean, again, 10 of the 14 teams finished between 6 and 8 wins, but nobody other than Alabama finished with more than 10 wins, I mean, which is absurd. I mean, it's, it's, it's been a while since that's been done. So the thing is, even if Jalen Hurts doesn't take that step forward— Alabama should still be the favorite in the SEC. I don't think that anybody's quite knocking on their door quite as yet. Um, But I do think that with that kind of natural growth that you will see between a true freshman and true sophomore year, they'll be that much more dangerous. Now, at the same time, Alabama does lose several starters on defense, especially in the front seven. And that's where Alabama was really just miles better than everybody else this year was in the front seven. You know, you lose Tim Williams, you lose Jonathan Allen, and those are going to be tough guys to replace. Um, you know, Alabama will have a very good defense next year, but it won't have the senior heavy, you know, uh, chaos ridden defense that maybe they had this year. So I do think a lot more will be on it, but I don't know that even if he weren't to take a step forward, I don't know if that's enough for anybody else to catch them in the SEC as yet.
2: Yeah. Speaking of other contenders in the SEC, Auburn, you know, Gus Malzahn has reworked his offense a little bit. And uh, with a new quarterback, actually, Baylor transfer Jarrett Stidham, uh, how do you think Auburn might fare next year in the SEC?
4: Yeah, you know, I think that at this moment, you have to consider them second or third at the worst behind LSU in terms of contenders in the SEC. Um, You know, you looked at Auburn this year and it was kind of uh, a little uncharacteristic. Because Auburn's offense was really the issue most of the year. When Sean White was totally healthy, they were very, very good. But when he wasn't, they, their offense just completely fell apart. Uh, now they lose Carl Lawson on the defensive line, Montrevious Adams on the defensive line. So those are going to be two major, major uh, losses next year. And for that reason, the offense is going to have to step up and be a lot bigger than it was this year. But I think that Stidham, you know, just in himself, is miles better than White is. And if he's able to stay healthy, I think he brings a whole new dimension to the offense because they didn't throw the ball downfield hardly at all this year. Uh, You know, when White was throwing the ball, he was throwing it, you know, 10, 15 yards most of the time. And if he got over 200 yards, uh, you know, I think they were close to undefeated. So if Stidham's able to get 200 yards a game, which, you know, all three of us have watched him, we know that he can do that then, I mean, Auburn can be a really, really good team next year.
1: I think it's going to be interesting to see what Gus Malzahn does with the offensive coordinator position as that has just come open. But, uh, you know, we are a Houston-based podcast, and, you know, we have a lot of listeners that support AM and and LSU. So I want to touch on both of those programs for a moment. And, you know, kind of after a disastrous close of the season, culminated by a 33-28 loss to K-State in the Texas Bowl, How hot is the coaching seat for Kevin Sumlin and what is the outlook for the Aggies with, you know, several key players, either exhausting their eligibility like Trevor Knight or, uh, you know, players declaring for the draft a little bit early?
4: Yeah. Well, you know, I was just looking at their roster the other day and honestly it starts to get a little dire. Um, You know, obviously at quarterback, they're potentially going to be starting uh, Jake Hubenak, the former Juco transfer, but someone didn't seem to have a lot of faith in him this year. Uh, And, in the games that he played, you know, they were pretty unimpressed against UTSA. They, uh, you know, they finished the game against Mississippi State with a loss when Hubenak had to jump in. I don't know that necessarily you're totally comfortable with whatever you're running. And now they they also bring in former Baylor commit, actually, Kellen Mond, who, you know, maybe he ends up taking the job. Uh, I think that he's got a little inconsistent in arm to try and produce at that level. But, again, Trevor Knight did last year too. It'll be interesting to see what they decide to do there. But really, the rest of the team, there have been a lot of losses. Uh, Actually, with Ricky Seals-Jones and Speedy Noyle both declaring for the NFL draft, uh, it's something like their top six wide receivers are gone. So then after Christian Kirk, who obviously Christian Kirk's incredible, after Christian Kirk, the second leading receiver, has only 74 receiving yards last year. I mean, they have a lot to replace, and that doesn't even count the defense where you're losing Miles Garrett, Sean Washington. Luckily, Armani Watts is coming back, but they're losing a lot. I mean, this is going to have to be a quick rebuild for Kevin Seltman, and they're going to have another top recruiting class, but some of those guys probably need to come in and play right away.
1: What about LSU? I mean, they were rumored to be in the uh, Tom Herman week states, but, you know, ultimately removed the interim tag from Ed Ordron And, you know, Matt Canada is the new OC, not Lane Kiffin, like everyone anticipated. And, you know, they lose arguably one of the most explosive offensive threats in the country to them littering And I really like, uh, you know, Darius Geis at running back who had about 1400 yards and 15 rushing touchdowns a season. But uh, does he bring enough offensively to allow the Tigers a challenge for the SEC West crown?
4: You know, it's all going to rest on new offensive quarter, Matt Canada. Uh, and so Canada is a really interesting guy. He was at Pitt this year, and he's been at Pitt the past few years with uh, with uh, Pat Narduzzi. So actually, you know, in a very notable game earlier this year, Pitt went out and won a game 76 to 61 over Syracuse, which is a score that should never be achieved in a college football game. But he's a guy who you know runs kind of variations of spread and pro style. Um, he's very creative. There was actually a particular play where I believe he threw the ball to a left tackle who went in for a touchdown. So Canada is willing to do different things. He's willing to attack in different ways. Um, and, and if he's able to take advantage of this personnel, because, again, he's never worked with this much talent before. At LSU, you know one thing, you're going to have talent. Um, and so the big question for me isn't necessarily Geist, actually. It's what they end up doing at quarterback. They might just stick with Danny Etling next year and just hope that he can improve a little bit. They might even bring in Brandon Harris again and give him another shot with maybe a more simplified offense. But what they decide to do there, to me, is going to be the crux of where, of where their offense runs. Because when they're if they're able to establish a passing game, I think that that totally opens things up. Because Guys, again, in his games this year, again, nobody's Leonard Fournette, but he was as close as you're going to get other than Leonard Fournette. And in the bowl game, he proved it again. I believe he had 138 yards and a touchdown in and, and an easy win over Louisville. So I'm excited to see how this offense develops. But, yeah, it's going to really depend on how that quarterback position kind of uh, finishes out.
2: You know, Shayhan, this kind of brings an interesting question to mind for me. Uh, it seems like SEC teams like LSU, like Auburn, like Bama, um, Bama excluded, but they, they tend to get these four- and five-star guys on offense but never seem to cobble together a program that can really be effective uh, in the long run right why, why do you think that is
4: well I think you especially look at this year it, it really came down to quarterback play and obviously you look at Les Miles a few years before even some issues with at the end of Mark Rick's tenure it, it really comes down to to bad quarterback play because again if you have great offensive linemen great defensive linemen great receivers and you can't get anybody the ball that then there's really no point um and, and so the, the valuable guys to me in terms of coaches in, in the conference are guys like Dan Mullen who have turned this no-name guy, Nick Fitzgerald, into, you know, quite the player. Um, but the issue is, right, when you have two guys who who failed to to start at Purdue starting in the SEC, that's an issue. And it's not necessarily just a talent thing because, you know, almost every SEC team has four-stars and five-star quarterbacks on their roster, But a lot of the time, those guys are getting beat out by, again, Luke Del Rio, a former walk-on at Alabama, Austin Appleby, a former Purdue quarterback, Danny Etling, a former Purdue quarterback. So it really comes down to developing some of these players and not just hoping that they work out. And I think that, obviously, again, the SEC has been known for a while as a defensive conference, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have great quarterback play, too, because you really need that to compete at the highest level.
1: Kind of switching gears here for a moment. I'm a Baylor grad. You're a Baylor grad. Jeremy's a Baylor grad, and so let's talk Matt Rule and Baylor. You know, I guess it's been about a month since he's been on the job, and I, I know he hasn't coached a game yet, or they haven't gone through any practice, but he's made you know a few national appearances on ESPN, including the uh, you know the ESPN MegaCast during the College Football Playoff Championship, which I, I thought he just did a phenomenal job. Uh, but you know, he's made a splash on the recruiting front as well, and you know, it's essentially filled out his staff with some marquee names, especially among the Texas high school football coaching circles. How would you grade this hire? You know. Just just a few weeks in?
4: Yeah, well, you know, when the hire was made, I was a little surprised by it. And and I've, I've known for a long time that Matt Rule is, you know, a great coach and a hot commodity, but he seemed like a weird fit. Um, and I mean, I know that I'm not alone in this. Uh, it was the intro press conference that won me over. You know, he came out and he kind of has that sort of preacher cadence to him. You know, he really got everybody excited. And at least for me, That was a little bit of proof that, hey, this guy understands Baylor. Uh, He understands the fan base a little bit. He understands where they are right now. And in the weeks after that, I mean, again, like you said, he hasn't coached a game. You know, he he only has a couple recruits under his belt in the grand scheme of things. Uh, But you look at those hires that he made. I mean, again, Joey McGuire is a power broker in Texas high school school football. Um, And, you know, Dan Wetzel from San Antonio, that's a power broker in, in high school football. Whether or not he actually you know, has these Texas ties, understands Texas as well as he needs to, he has guys around him who definitely understand Texas and who understand the nuances. And the thing is, with Texas, perhaps more than any other state, uh, you can fill out a top-level college football team with talent from this one state and never really have to go far outside of it. Um, and I think that the guys that he's building around himself – are really going to be important in that transition. And, and we'll see, again, uh, whether the players that he brings in are a good fit or what talent he's able to get or what system he runs because we don't really know as yet. But I think that up until this point, I don't think you can give him anything other than an A.
2: Yeah, actually, just thinking about um, you know the transfers, the, the eight commits that he has so far, I mean, he's done really well. Where do you see, I think as a Baylor fan, sometimes I wonder like where – He's going with uh, on the on the recruiting trail, like where his emphasis will be in terms of like his offensive play. Where do you think he heads in uh, to next season in terms of, you know, offense? What would that look like for the Bears?
4: Yeah, well, I think that um, you know you look at some of the comments that he's made, uh, he does understand that you need to take advantage of the talent that you have in the state. And one of the reasons why you know the former coach at Baylor was able to be so successful there, was because he was coming in and running a very similar system to what really at this point most of te- Texas high school football is running, which is you know a spread, high-powered, fast-paced, uh, you know, throwing the ball a lot. That's what people are running across Texas now, and so athletes are used to that. They're able to transition relatively well. And so I think that if you're Matt Rule, and he does seem to get this, you have to take advantage of the talent base that's around you. So I do think that there will still be a premium on – you know, some forms of spread and stuff like that. I think that they're really going to take a step back with the tempo, though, because I think that, um, you know, you look what he's done the past few years, and, uh, you know, they've slowed it down. They've really tried to work with their personnel. And I think that when you want to build a defensive program, you do need to take a step back from the tempo because, you know, tempo forces your offense off the field very quickly and forces your defense to be on the field a lot. And I don't think that that's an ideal situation for what rule has done in the past. So I think that there still will be, you know, lots of spread. I do think that there will be, uh, you know, they've already started circulating the hashtag big play BU. I do think that there still will be plenty of shots down the field, plenty of big plays, but I think that it'll be more methodical. I think that. Um, they'll really try to hold on to the ball a little bit more than what they've done in the past few years.
2: Thinking ideally from a fan standpoint, what do you think? Uh, you know, an ideal result for Matt Roll as you know, f- uh, first-year head coach at Baylor University looks like.
4: Yeah, no, no that's tough because uh, you know you do bring back a decent amount of talent in your first season, um, but again, you don't know uh, necessarily what talent fits what they want to do, and second, you don't necessarily know. Uh, how much depth you are going to have to do it because you are potentially down, you know, most of two recruiting classes. Um, they could be playing with, you know, 50 scholarship kids next year. So it, it's going to be, it's going to be a struggle for them. If anybody gets hurt, I think that if you're Matt roll, your goal is to just try and make a bowl game, um, you know, which is, you know, a tough thing to do as a first year head coach uh, in a place that's working with, you know, less scholarship players than you need. But I think that if they can get to, you know, if they can get to six and six, I think that everybody has to be thrilled. And again, after the success of the past two years, that's going to feel a little underwhelming for some Baylor fans. But I think that you, if you have something to build on there, if you have that success, that postseason, those extra practices, you know, that immediate success to sell to recruits. I think that you have to be thrilled about that.
1: Yeah, kind of, it, it's it's unfortunate that the college football season just ended. I mean, I think all of us are a little in depression mode right now, uh, you know, kind of looking forward to late August, early September when everything's get underway. But uh, Shayhan, uh, we definitely appreciate you joining us this week on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And I know you're pretty active on social media, you know, whether it's SEC talk, whether it's Baylor talk, whether it's, you know, kind of joking around, even some, you know, uh, Donald Trump commentary, which I definitely appreciate. Uh, how can our listeners find you on social media?
4: Yeah, the best way to reach me is definitely Twitter, and it's at Shahan J. Raja, S-H-E-H-A-N-J-E-Y-A-R-A-J-A-H. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty active on there. I'm pretty easy to reach on there.
1: Now, what about SEC Country? How can they find you on there as well?
4: Yeah, so so I do general assignment stuff for for SEC Country, uh, so just seccountry.com. You know, I'm all over the site, so, you know, you can Google my name with SEC Country to find a list of all my articles. Um, But my stuff appears, you know, on the front page of the site all the time.
1: Well, we definitely appreciate you joining us and uh, good luck, I guess, as you get a little bit of downtime, hopefully, and uh, before everything gears up for spring football.
4: Yes. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you having me on.
1: Closing time. We just had two great interviews joining us for episode 77 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Thanks to Todd and thanks to uh, Sheehan for joining us on the show and uh, Astros... Pitchers and catchers report in
0: less than five weeks. I couldn't be more fired up about the season. I can tell from your body language that you're fired up. And there's just, I mean, pitchers and catchers reporting. Good God, I could not care less about anything except maybe soccer. But but I'm happy for you. It's nice to see you be so excited. And I'm looking forward to the only part of baseball season I like, Austin, is watching you be so enthralled with it. That's really It's so much fun. I love, I love it.
1: I love it. I don't think there's anything better than baseball. I, I love going to games, just sitting back, like having a drink. Uh, talking with friends, it's just so much fun. I, I, nothing beats a night at the
2: ballpark, in my opinion. Yeah, Austin, I actually pay attention more to baseball because you are so enthused by it, because I want to know what you're so happy about. So uh, <laughs> I actually otherwise would not pay attention That's at so all. sweet. I'm so yeah, content to <laughs> look at my college football recruiting and news until the season starts. But thanks to you, I look at baseball more.
1: Well, uh, I appreciate that. But uh, thanks to you uh, again, Todd Callis for joining us on the show. I thought he uh, provided a unique perspective on, uh, you know, not only the season, but his job, uh, what he does also, it's kind of cool to hear him, you know, discuss uh, his relationship with his father and also being able to call a World Series game with him. That was uh, uh, pretty fascinating,
0: yeah. And we had Bill Brown, of course, on episode 66. We uh, we love Brownie, which you called him multiple times. I did not have the courage to That's call him Brownie. Nickname. I know, That's I know, his Twitter is. handle, right? But I didn't, you know, I didn't like you know, work with the guy or anything. But, but, but as bold as that was, you know, we love him and his work. and Talking to Todd. I feel pretty confident about him coming in and replacing him, doing a really fantastic. And he's got a job. great voice too. Absolutely, very, very smart, very uh, charming and engaging too. So I got I, you know there was a, there was a period where I'm like, oh god, you lose Brownie. Not there I said it. But what are you going to do? And uh, I think they did find the guy. I mean, I credit to the Astros for going out there and getting Todd because he, uh, he has the roots, you know, he has the ties, right. definitely has the talent.
1: I think Reed Ryan made an excellent hire, and I can't wait to watch him on Root Sports uh, this spring. But also Shehan, I thought he uh, brought a lot of insider knowledge covering the SEC and I thought his breakdown of the national championship game between Alabama and Clemson is spot on. Also, it was interesting to see uh, what his projections were for Deshaun Watson.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. Uh, special thanks to Shayon for coming on. He, he's, he has the ability to say a lot in a short amount of time, which I think right. speaks <laughs> to his ability to report on this stuff well. Um, yeah, no, it was it was great talking uh, SEC football with him and sort of some of the differences between the SEC and other conferences. Also talking um, about Baylor and the hire uh, with Matt Rule coming coming in making a big splash in the recruiting scene. I mean just since we had the interview, I mean he's picked up even more
1: recruits. So I'm yeah, excited. I think as something as like Baylor 4 or 5 recruits. Yeah, Baylor yeah, has no, like 12 I'm, recruits right and now. And
2: all these transfers. I'm, I'm really excited as a Baylor football fan to see us get back on our feet in the 2017 season. But
1: Yeah, it should be yeah. should be a lot of fun. I think fans expectations might be a little high. I was looking at some of the message boards and people were like, "Yeah, I think 9 wins is realistic." I don't think so. Hmm, I yeah. think I think Shayhon had it on point that the we, Baylor success this year would be a bowl game.
2: Absolutely. We should be happy just to go to a bowl game. Wow. Yeah. yeah
1: I, I I think that it, they're going to have talent. Depth is going to be an issue. I think learning a new scheme is going to be challenging for the players. I and the Big 12 is going to be tough. I mean, their first game is against Oklahoma this year. Mm. Uh, the road game against Duke, that's not easy, especially a new coach, young team. I, I don't know that that's easy, but I think if you can get to six, seven wins... I think that sets you up well to get eight, nine wins in year two. And I think that's what's important is Baylor fans need to see progress.
3: What about,
0: uh, for the, for the hometown fans, this is a Houston podcast. How do we feel about the Cougars next year? (sighs) Uh, that, what would be successful? I, I mean, I would say that given the talent they have, and you know, obviously recruiting's not been as. Tom Herman is a figure. He, he's stealing guys. He's got an incredible class coming into Texas. There, I'm sad that uh, I, I,
1: your defense is going to be good. Exactly,
0: he's going to be phenomenal. I, I, I like Kyle
1: Allen at quarterback. Uh, and if if you listen to Tillman Fertitta, nine wins is the minimum. So they always
0: talk about how guys that are you know college aged eighteen to twenty two whatever just can't physically make it in the NFL. You know, not like the, you have Lebron's, you have Kevin Garnett's guys that went immediately to the NBA and had success i think ed oliver could play in the nfl right now i think so
1: too i think if he was eligible i think if he was eligible for the nfl draft this year i think he'd be a top five pick yeah i
0: think you're probably right about it. i think there are
1: very few players that i have seen that could do that i think jd Clowney is one of them i think adrian peterson after his freshman year in oklahoma was just phenomenal i think he could have gone into the nfl that's why i think it's going to be interesting to see if tom brady's agent his his name's don Yee of his league that is essentially gonna be an NFL developmental league that has no affiliation with the NFL, if if that can work, because I think you could see guys like Ed Oliver go there for a year, develop focus just on football, essentially like training for the NFL combine right. and then go into the NFL the following year. But I think there are guys that are NFL ready just a year out of high school.
0: And that's 2018. Now the NFL rules still would require them to sit out until they're three years removed from high school. So that's, that's you know, a fair point. Which is why you, and that's kind of cool because you have them there for a while too. So you're able to kind of build something. Again, we talk about player development, right? And you have some consistency in terms of schemes. You what you what you see unlike the XFL, the USFL would actually resemble real football, hopefully, and be really entertaining to watch. I would think maybe equally as entertaining as watching college football for two teams that you have no affiliation with and no dog in that hunt or whatever.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Sorry, I was just, I wanted to remark about U of H. I, I would not underestimate a major Apple White squad. Uh, going next year, of course, he's
1: gonna. Pay I'd feel him. more confident with him playing quarterback, just because that <laughs> that guy never <laughs> lost. Like he he was so so much of a competitor. I mean, I, I what is he like 34 He probably his eligibility right is, uh, is, is Ex- exhausted, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think there's a lot of reason to be hopeful for U of H. I mean, they have a tough non conference schedule this year. Again, I'm going to
0: work on getting Major a uh, uh, medical redshirt or whatever they call it. Okay, <laughs> well, well and, there's something I can go back and, and start get him back a petition, play. right? Yeah,
1: and let's, uh, let's make go, Major great again.
2: <laughs> let's go over the past few coaches that U of H just. I mean, they've consistently been good on the field. Tony regardless. LeVine. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, terrible.
2: Well, he was terrible, but they still did okay as a
1: team. Assuming, well, they had some know. injury issues with yeah, him. Right. I think right. uh, they had two quarterbacks go down, and I think they had like, a quarterback transfer. Uh, so they had some really tough issues uh, at the quarterback position. But yeah, I, I think Major can be successful at U of H, and I think they have a lot of talent returning next he year. He
0: seems to be saying all the right things about being in for the long haul, too, which Tom Herman obviously did
4: not. No, so. I, I, think,
1: I think the moment Tom Herman was hired... Everyone knew that this was going to be a short-term thing. I think Major Applewhite, he's going to be at U of H, contingent on the fact that he wins nine games a year, because that's the bar that Tillman Forte set for him. I think he's going to be there for the long haul, like five, six years, maybe until a, a big job opens up. That, but I think he has to have success, and not just like marginal success. I think he needs to, you know, push for New Year's Six bowls, like you know, multiple times. I think I think he's got to make a run at the College Football Championship
0: for him to be elevated to that higher level given the talent in this city from a high school athletics perspective i mean there's really no reason houston shouldn't be contending for uh very high levels uh we're pointing at the television here we were watching the green bay dallas game at the time so if we're if we're not talking about the results of games because we're actually viewing it here and it's uh it's not a great game for dallas it looks like it's a great game for houston fans though yeah
1: yeah,
2: the only thing that can you know soothe my wounds from last night is to see Dallas lose. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah, it would make it sweet. I would, I would. rather see Dallas win. They're another Texas team, but it's Dallas. I don't want Dallas to have anything
0: else to I'm reinforce you, their Jeremy. false
2: sense of superiority over everybody else. No, that is
0: no. so <laughs> endogenous, though. <They're>, no <laughs> Dallas fan is ever not going to have that sense of superiority. So I don't care what affects it or doesn't. I would like to see a, a Texas team win the Super Bowl. All right. Well, hopefully it's not the Cowboys. So no.
2: <laughs>
1: well. <okay. laughs> we're kind of out of Dallas them. fans are already loathsome as as it is I don't want yeah, to yeah let's let's yeah. just root for the Texans in Super Bowl 52 let's let's make that happen but again we had a we had a great episode today a, episode 77 of the weekly brew podcast thanks to Todd Callison Shayhan Jay Araja for joining us on the show and uh, if you want to continue to follow our work you can check us out on social media just search weekly brewcast on all platforms uh, all of our work is posted on there and we uh, also post to our website each Monday morning weeklybrewcast.com you can see the show rundown on there uh, each day. And if you to follow us on social media you can follow kevin at at k michael cook jeremy at uh, fiesta bear 08 and you can follow me at a statin that's s-t-a-t-o-n
0: but guys if you look at those twitter handles right i think there's some commonalities a statin k michael cook and then fiesta bear 08
2: fiesta bear that's right
0: so, uh, clearly we had the same thought in choosing, you know, sort of professional handles that would represent us in the world as we went out and tried to get jobs and <laughs> tried to engage with people. What were you thinking, Jeremy? Well, you guys are
2: like, you know, quasi public figures. I mean, you Ooh, do quasi-art. PR, like you do, yeah. PR, <laughs> I'm, you I'm do like journalism,
0: I'm in mental health. I don't I tweet do journalism. <laughs> So you. anyway, follow all of us, though, because you and I will say uh, I'm going to push the, uh, f- the Facebook page this week because we have 1300 people liked it, uh, have liked it over. Right. history. World. We have considerably more listeners than that. So there are many of you guys that are hearing our voices that have not liked the Facebook page. It's Very easy. Just go search the weekly bro on Facebook and we don't like flood you with things. No, we no, don't sell we, your information. We don't even get your information. No, we, we just we
1: just post articles that we find relevant. We post our show on there each week yeah it's a great, great spot to find all of our content
0: and if you find something interesting you can find one of our posts and share it around your Facebook as well that's always more helpful than uh, than the stuff that we put out there too so hey we know you guys like us you're listening to us go and support us yeah
1: absolutely so just follow us weekly brewcast check us out all of our you know even if you go to weeklybrewcast.com all of our contact information is listed there if you want to reach out to us but again thanks to Todd and Shayhan for joining us on episode 77 of the weekly brew podcast uh, and for my co-host this week Kevin Cook Jeremy
0: Paxton my name is Austin Statton we'll see you next week And guys, remember, no matter who you are, where you go, or what you do this week, always, always brew responsibly. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew.